What is going on, sports fans, and welcome back to another edition of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast, Season 3, Episode 34. And what an episode we have lined up for you this week. The Super Bowl is set. I recap both the AFC Championship and NFC Championship games, give my thoughts on what went down in those games, and we give a little bit of a sneak peek at the Super Bowl, but we are not going to pick or preview the Super Bowl this week. We're going to save that for next week's episode. We also got some more NFL news, including some coaching carousel updates with Josh McDaniels and Brian Dable getting hired. Tom Brady officially calls it a career, and Brian Flores is suing the NFL. We also react to the Washington football team's new name, talk some NBA basketball, and have your update, your weekly update on the MLB lockout. So we're going to get to all that, but First, as always, this episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you creation tools, editing tools, everything you need to make your very own podcast. It gives it to you right from your phone or computer for free. And so if you want to make your very own podcast, you need to download the free Anchor app in the App Store or Google Play Store today or go online to anchor.fm to get started with your very own podcast today. Today is Thursday, February 3rd. Let's go. And welcome back to Season 3, Episode 34 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. You know what time it is. It's time to recap Championship Sunday. We start in Kansas City, where the Bengals look to try and beat the Chiefs in Arrowhead. A new Cincinnati legend was born, as the new Joe Cool, Joe Burrow, led the Bengals back from an 18-point deficit in Kansas City, matching the second-largest road postseason comeback in NFL history. He's also the second quarterback since 1950 to lead a game-winning drive in back-to-back road playoff games since Colin Kaepernick. Burrow and his rookie friends like Jamar Chase are legit, so this result should not have come as a surprise. Here's another reason why it shouldn't surprise you. Including the Kansas City loss, playoff teams that survived an overtime game have gone 8-18 the following game. The Chiefs had their chances, but this was about the Bengals, who came in and seized their first Super Bowl trip in 33 years. We'll see if the above statistic comes into play in LA in two weeks, but regardless, Eli Apple at Media Day promises to be fun. 
as the Bengals win in overtime, 27-24. We finish in Englewood, where the Rams took on the 49ers, and Kyle Shanahan looked to go to his second Super Bowl, while Sean McVay had revenge on the mind for the six straight times the Niners beat the Rams. Los Angeles beats some long odds to become the second straight NFL team to play a Super Bowl in its home stadium. They had lost six straight to San Francisco, 14 of the previous 22 teams to lose the first two games to a division rival in the regular season went on to lose the playoff meeting as well. Sean, McVay te Sean McVay's teams are all but finished when trailing by double digits in the second half. LA's fears about the crowd being dominated by 49ers fans were realized as they basically played a road game at home. But the stars shined bright in Tinseltown, none brighter than Cooper Cup, also known as the real MVP. And Jimmy G proved again why the G stands for Jimmy Gone. Matthew Stafford will make the Rams a sentimental Super Bowl favorite. And they better win it now because it might just be their best shot at a championship glory before Trey Lance comes in and turns the Niners into a juggernaut. As the Rams win 20-17. Championship Sunday is in the books, and what a couple of games we had to decide who was going to the Super Bowl. That's right, the Super Bowl matchup is set. The Bengals beat the Chiefs. They will represent the AFC, and the Rams beat the 49ers. They will represent the NFC in the Super Bowl on February 13th in Los Angeles. And I went one for two last week in picks. I picked against the Bengals twice in the playoffs, and both times they have proved me wrong. And I've picked the Rams to win each round, and I've been right every time. So something's got to give with my Super Bowl pick. So who is my pick? Well, we're going to have to wait till next week's season finale Super Bowl preview episode, which is going to include interviews and predictions, analysis of the matchup. It's going to be a great way to wrap up the season, season three of Jack of All Trades, before we kick it back up with season four during the NBA playoffs and the start of the MLB season. But tune in next week to our Super Bowl preview episode to hear my prediction. We're also going to have an interview. I'm hoping we're going to line up some interviews with hopefully someone from the Bengals who can talk to us about the Bengals, maybe someone from the Rams who could talk to us about the Rams. But it's going to be a great episode. It's going to be a great week of coverage, and we're going to cover this Super Bowl and it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. So let's start with the Bengals Chiefs. It was the first game that happened on Championship Sunday, and I picked the Chiefs in this game. I said last week I remember saying Joe Burrow will need to play like Josh Allen did against the Chiefs if the Bengals want to have a chance. And he did, and that's part of the reason why they won. But the bigger reason why they won is because their defense flipped a switch in the second half. It was 21-3 at one point in the first half, I think with about a minute 30 left. And I thought, the Bengals are dead and buried. This is a Chiefs boat race. I've seen this movie before. It's happened time and time again. The Chiefs are just too good, and they can turn it on whenever they want to. Then the play, there are two plays that changed the fortunes of the Bengals in this game. The first one happened, it was a... It was a screen pass to Samaje Pirine, and Pirine made a couple of Chiefs defenders miss, and he took it all the way to the end zone to make it 21-10 with about a minute left until halftime. And then I was thinking, all right, if the, if the Bengals can get a stop here and stop the Chiefs, they will have a chance in this game. But then the Chiefs drove right down the field, and I'm thinking, oh, no, the Chiefs are going to punch it in with no time left. It's going to be 28-10. to The Chiefs are going to get the ball in the second half, and it's going to be 35-10, to and the game's already over. But 
The Chiefs got it all the way down to the five-yard line. There were five seconds left. Instead of kicking the field goal, Andy Reid decides, you know what, I trust my offense. I'm going to put them out there for one last play. Even though we don't have any timeouts, we're going to score a touchdown in this play. So Mahomes drops back. He throws it to Tyreek Hill, who gets tackled by Eli Apple, who was getting absolutely roasted on Twitter all day in the first half because he was getting burned by Miko Hardman, Tyreek Hill. All the Chiefs receivers were burning him. But he tackles Tyreek Hill, leaves him short of the end zone. Time expires, and we're going into halftime at 21-10. to 10. And I'm thinking, all right, maybe we got ourselves a game. The Bengals kick a field goal to make it 21-13. to 13. Then Joe Burrow hits Jamar Chase for a touchdown, and then he hits uh, Trent Taylor on a two-point conversion. It's 21-21, and then I'm thinking it's, it's anybody's game. It's anybody's game. The Bengals go on that first drive to go ahead 24-21, and the thing that gave the Bengals all the confidence and all they needed in that, the, in that drive was Joe Burrow using his legs, using his athleticism. He's a big guy. Joe Burrow, he's a big guy. He's about 6'3", 6'4", and he can get defenders off of him. He is that strong. He has that strength to be able to do that. And he made some great runs. There was a third and six and a third and seven where Joe Joe Burrow got outside the pocket, looked like he was going to get sacked both times, and he made a play. He ran for a first down, and it led to the first go-ahead field goals that the Bengals would kick. So the Bengals kicked a field goal with about, I think, four minutes left, and then the Chiefs got the ball back. And myself and Tony Romo and a bunch of other people in America thought, we've seen this movie before. The Bengals are up three. The Chiefs got the ball back with four minutes left. They're going to drive down the field and score a touchdown with no time left. And I honestly thought that's what was going to happen. You had um, Tony Romo having the Chiefs in the end zone when they got to the Bengals' 40-yard line, which, you know, they, they, they still got a long ways to go, Tony. But the Bengals' defense, they bent on this drive. The Chiefs once again had a first and goal with about, I think, under a minute left. But then... Mahomes and the Chiefs tried to get cute again. Mahomes is running backwards on like every play, running 15 yards backwards. He almost fumbled the game away in regulation, but they started with a first and goal at the five-yard line. They ended with a fourth and goal at the 20-yard line, and they had to go ahead. Harrison Bucker nailed a game-tying field goal, and it sent it to overtime. And then the overtime, it's the second week the Chiefs played in overtime, like we mentioned last week. In the divisional round, everybody was like, oh, the overtime rules need to get changed. Whoever wins the coin toss is going to win the game. And I was thinking the same thing. The Chiefs won the coin toss. Their fans were going crazy. It felt like they were going to win. And then Mahomes throws an interception that was actually caused in part by Eli Apple. The Bengals get it at the 40-yard line. Joe Burrow drives them down. Joe Mixon makes a couple of plays. And the rookie... The ice-cold, ice-water-in-his-veins rookie, Evan McPherson, kicks the field goal that sends the Cincinnati Bengals to their first Super Bowl in 33 years. What a story this Bengals team is. They're a great team. And I have some listeners who, uh, I won't name any names, but you know who we are when you're listening to this, who told me that I hate on the Bengals. I am a Browns fan, but I don't openly hate on the Bengals. I picked against the Bengals against the Titans and the Chiefs because I thought the Titans and the Chiefs have matchup advantages and that they were better teams. And quite frankly, 
I think the Chiefs are a better team than the Bengals, even though the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. But on that Sunday, the Bengals were the better team. They proved they can go head-to-head with anybody in the league. They knocked out Superman. They knocked out the king in his castle. And they knocked down Mahomes. They're going to the Super Bowl, led by a second-year quarterback who's coming off ACL surgery, Joe Burrow, a rookie receiver, and a rookie kicker. And a fourth-year head coach who a lot of people thought was going to get fired before the season. What a fantastic story this Bengals team is. They, they, they got a chance to win the Super Bowl, and it, it, it has a chance to be one of the fastest turnarounds in NFL history. Just last year, when after Joe Burrow got hurt, they only won one game. They were 2-14 and 14 last year, and they flipped the switch. They go 10-7 and seven and win the North, and they beat the Raiders, the Titans, the number one seed on the road, and the Chiefs, the number two seed on the road, to get to the Super Bowl. What a job by Joe Burrow, and what a job by this Bengals team. They undoubtedly deserve this Super Bowl trip. However, the Chiefs also kind of choked in this game. Now, I'm not taking any way, anything away from the Bengals when I say that. But the Chiefs had a ton of chances to put this game away, and they choked. The, I mentioned they were up 21-3. to It's the second largest playoff comeback on the road, matching... The, I think matching the Colts when they played the Patriots back in 2006, I think they were also down 21 to 3. So it, it, it was a, the game I thought was in control when they're up 21 to 3. If they kicked the field goal at the end of the first half instead of Eli Apple stopping Tyreek Hill from getting in the end zone, maybe it's a different game going into the half up 24 to 10 instead of up 21 to 10. They blew it. Mahomes was making bonehead plays in the fourth quarter. And Mahomes is so talented and so good. He's the best quarterback in the league. But sometimes he thinks he's good enough to make anything out of a broken play. And it leads to mistakes like it did on in Sunday's game. Mahomes, uh, on that last drive where the Chiefs settled for that game-tying field goal, he ran backwards for at least 10 yards where he either got sacked or he fumbled and then it was recovered by the Chiefs. He did that twice. He was just running around and I'm sitting here going, dude, what are you doing? Get rid of the ball. Because he almost blew the game away with that fumble. And then in overtime, he threw it into double coverage on first and 10 on a deep ball. And it got intercepted and the Bengals win. It's a tough look for the Chiefs because the Chiefs are expected to win this game. Win the AFC Championship. Every time every every year they're expected to because they have Patrick Mahomes they have Andy Reid they have Tyreek Hill they have Travis Kelsey but those three plays those three moments in the game the end of the first half when Ty they call that play to Tyreek Hill which a they threw the ball but it was a swing pass they didn't even throw the ball into the end zone that it alone is risking not scoring but Tyreek Hill gets, gets tackled for no gain. Time runs out. Mahomes running backwards and jeopardizing their chances of scoring. He took back-to-back sacks at the end of regulation. That one and then the interception in overtime. Those three plays cost the Chiefs their third straight trip to the Super Bowl. And hey, I know they have Pat Mahomes. They should be back in this game next year. 
But you, you look, you have to go against Joe Burrow and this Bengals team, who no doubt will be back in the playoffs next season. You got to go against Josh Allen and the Bills, who no doubt will be hungry to beat the Chiefs after losing to them back-to-back seasons in the playoffs. You got Justin Herbert and the Chargers, who are in your division, who could win that division, who I think have the talent to win that division. And you still got a bunch of other talented, scrappy teams like the Browns in the AFC who can beat you, like the New England Patriots, who can beat you, who are fringe playoff teams right now, who if they correct a couple of things, they can beat they can beat the Chiefs. So even though the Chiefs have all in for all intents and purposes, should be back in this game next season, in a chance to go to the Super Bowl next season, you can't take Games like this for granted. Against the team you're supposed to beat who you were up 21-3 to on. You blew that lead, and who knows? Are you? It's so hard to get back to a Super Bowl. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm going on a little bit of a ramble here. We'll get to the next game in a minute. But this Chiefs team reminds me of the Green Bay Packers with Aaron Rodgers of the, of the early 2010s. When the Packers went on that Super Bowl winning run and beat the Steelers, A lot of people thought it was the start of a dynasty. The same thing can be said about the 1999 Rams. They only won one Super Bowl. The Packers only won one Super Bowl. Are the Chiefs the latest team who we thought were going to be a dynasty? Are they the latest team to only win one Super Bowl and constantly come up just short of getting there in the future? I don't know. But I just think this game, they kind of took their foot off the gas. The Bengals wanted the game more. That's why the Bengals won. All right, let's get to the other game, Rams versus 49ers. This was another good game, and I thought this game was over at points too. And for all the hate I gave, I gave Jimmy G in the open, he didn't play horribly. He was 16-30 for 232 yards and two touchdowns. But the Rams found themselves with their back against the wall. Jimmy G threw a gorgeous touchdown to George Kittle, in the third quarter, and the 49ers went up 17-7 to going into the fourth quarter. But the Rams responded, and the Stars showed up when they needed to. Matt Stafford had a great game. He threw for 337 yards and two touchdowns. And the two dynamic receivers that the Rams have, Cooper Cup, who I called the real MVP, and Odell Beckham Jr., both had over 100 yards. Cooper Cup had two touchdowns. For with 142 receiving yards, Odell had 113 receiving yards, and Von Miller made the play at the end. He got in Jimmy Garoppolo's face, forced Jimmy Garoppolo to throw that side pass interception, and the Rams. We we go all these years with Super Bowls without having a Super Bowl, a team playing the Super Bowl at their home stadium, and now it's happening two years in a row with the Rams doing it this season and the Buccaneers doing it last season. But what good job by the Rams. I picked the Rams, like I said, in every round in the playoffs this season because I think the Rams are, on paper, the most talented team in the NFL. And they finally started to play like it. Although these games are a lot closer than I think they should be, they finally start, have been starting to play like it, and they're going to the Super Bowl. And this game, the Rams-Bengals game, is going to be great. But this game, it was there for the 49ers taking. And it sucks for the 49ers because you had all the chances to put this one away. I think if you if you have any quarterback probably besides Jimmy G, 
you win this game. There was a play in the fourth quarter. Matthew Stafford threw a deep ball intended for Cooper Cup and Van Jefferson that was in the 49ers defender's hands. It should have been intercepted by Jaquiski Tart. It should have been intercepted by him. It hit him right in the hands and he dropped it. That play gave the Rams a new lease on life, so to speak. And the Rams use that and they win the game 20 to 17. And it was it was a great performance by this Los Angeles Rams team. Matt Stafford going to his first Super Bowl after those grueling years in Detroit. Odell Beckham going to his first Super Bowl. And Sean McVay, what a coaching job by Sean McVay. The youngest coach he's in the league. He's 36 years old. And he's going to his second Super Bowl in four years. That is quite an accomplishment for Sean McVay and for this Rams team. So the Rams get the best of the 49ers. Where do the 49ers go from here? I think they will be back in this position. Like I said, I mentioned Trey Lance has the ability to make this 49ers team a juggernaut. I think Trey Lance has a lot more pure talent, pure arm talent, pure ability than Jimmy Garoppolo. I think the Niners will definitely move on from Jimmy Garoppolo. And it will be Trey Lance's team. And he's inheriting a pretty talented offense. Obviously, Debo Samuel and George Kittle are the two stars on this offense. They have a pretty good running back with Eli Mitchell. They have some receivers who can contribute, like Jawan Jennings and Brandon Ayuk. And that defense is very talented as well. Fred Warner, linebacker, Jimmy Ward, safety, Nick Boza, one of the best defensive lineman in the game. So this Niners team, and they got Kyle Shanahan, who I think is a top 10 coach in the NFL. They will be back next year. Next year, And the, the like I said in the open, the Rams are lucky they won this game because I don't know how easy it's going to be to get back there next season, even in your division. I don't know how easy it's going to be to win that NFC West division either. So the Rams will take on the Bengals in the Super Bowl next Sunday from Los Angeles. Next week, we will have our preview, our Super Bowl preview episode, where I will give my final pick of the season, who will win the big game. You'll have to listen next week to find out. That will be our season finale of season three of Jack of All Trades before we pick things back up. Like I said, the start of the MLB season, the NBA playoffs. But right now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we run around some other NFL news, including Tom Brady's retirement, the NBA season, what the Cavs have been up to recently, and the MLB lockout. We got some interesting news the last couple of days about the MLB lockout. Uh, MLB lockout. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after a word from Anchor. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 34 of the Jack of All Trades Sports Podcast. Let's talk about some other NFL news, and we are starting with Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time, announces he is calling it a career and officially retired. In his Instagram post yesterday, he said he is not going to make the competitive commitment anymore. He said, I've always believed the sport of football is an all-in proposition. If a 100% competitive commitment isn't there, you won't succeed. And success is what I love so much about our game. Uh, what a great career it was for Tom Brady. Obviously, he won six Super Bowls with the New England Patriots, won one with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, seven Super Bowls. It is a record that I don't think will be broken by any quarterback anytime soon. But Brady, you know, he 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 played the game the right way. He's a great story, you know. He was the 199th pick back in 2000 in the draft. 
He sat behind a good quarterback, a franchise quarterback many would consider, in Drew Bledsoe, got thrown into the ring of fire in the playoffs, led the Patriots to their first Super Bowl, and the rest, as they say, is history. Seven Lombardi trophies, five Super Bowl MVPs. He rewrote the NFL record book. Uh, career records include most passing touchdowns, most passing yards in 22 seasons. It was, And it was quite the ride. Um I think I was a little surprised Tom Brady retired that he made this decision when he did. I thought he wanted to play until he, uh, you know, got every last ounce of good football he had in his body out. And I, as you can see this year, he still had good football left in him. He led the league in passing touchdowns and passing yards this year as a 37 year old after turning 37. Brady won four Super Bowls and was 17-4 and four in the playoffs. That's crazy. He reached the playoffs a total of 19 times in 22 seasons, won 18 division titles, went 10-4 and four in conference championships, and 7-3 and three in Super Bowls. It was he, He's undisputed the greatest quarterback of all time. Now, as a fan of the Browns who have to play the Buccaneers next season, I am happy we will not have to face Tom Brady. <laughs> but... Congrats to him on a great career. I think he's done great things for the game of football. He's won time and time again. He seems to always make the players around him better. And he's got a bright future. And it's good for him that he gets to spend some time with his family. So Tom Brady calls it a career. And that brings up the topic. Is the 2027 Hall of Fame class going to be the greatest Hall of Fame class ever because you already have Tom Brady who I just mentioned Ben Roethlisberger retired earlier a couple weeks ago so that's two of the uh, probably top 20 greatest quarterbacks of all time in this Hall of Fame I believe because he's such a good friend of Tom Brady I think that Rob Gronkowski who's arguably the greatest tight end of all time will retire as well I think Adrian Peterson who's arguably a top 15 running back of all time, is going to retire. That alone, those four players, you could make the argument that the the draft class in 2027, which is five years from now in 2022, could be the greatest... Did I say draft class? I think I meant... (laughs) I think I said draft class, but I meant the Hall of Fame class in 2027. The The class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2027, which could feature Tom Brady... Ben Roethlisberger, Rob Gronkowski, and Adrian Peterson could be the most talented Hall of Fame class of all time. So congrats to Brady on a great career. The game of football will not be the same without Tom Terrific, but it, it, it's time for an, some other people to take, take that torch that Tom Brady has held so long. Will it be Pat Mahomes? Will it be Josh Allen? Will it be Joe Burrow? It's going to be very, very fun to find out. And that brings us to some other NFL news, including the Las Vegas Raiders announcing their new head coach, Josh McDaniels. McDaniels joins the Raiders. It's his 22nd season in the NFL. He spent 18 years with the Patriots, 13 seasons as the team's offensive coordinator. He also was the head coach of the Broncos from 2009-2010. I wanted Josh McDaniels to coach the Browns back when the Browns hired Kevin Stefanski. So I think it's a good hire for the Las Vegas Raiders. Obviously, they're coming off a playoff appearance with Derek Carr. They went 10-7, and kind of with 
all that they dealt with off the field. It was very impressive of them to make the playoffs this season. But they Josh McDaniels has some decisions to make now that he's the new head coach. But he has a lot of experience. I mentioned the 13 years as the New England Patriots offensive coordinator. NFL's number one ranked offense three times. He also coached the team to 12 seasons with 10 or more wins, while the offense has scored 400-plus points in 11 seasons, and he was also a part of six Super Bowl championships. He's an Ohio guy. Uh, he's from Canton. He attended John Carroll. So good luck to him in Las Vegas. I think it's a good hire. A lot of people are hating on this hire, but I think Josh McDaniels is probably the, one of the most experienced coaching candidates that you could get out there. Um, he's a younger guy. He's only 45 years old, but he's been doing it, like I said, for 22 years. And I was a little surprised he took this job, though, because he's been in New England for so long. I thought maybe, just maybe, he will. He's waiting for Bill Belichick to retire so he can take over as head coach. But Josh McDaniels proves he's the man for the Raiders and that he has broken all allegiances with the New England Patriots because he told the Raiders owner Mark Davis the first time they met. After the hiring, he said it was a fumble, referring to the tuck rule game, which McDaniels was on the sideline for, <laughs> for the Patriots, obviously was against the Raiders. So that's one of the coaching hires that has been made in the last couple days. The other one is the New York Giants hired Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator Brian Dable as their head coach. Dable spent uh, four seasons as the Bills offensive coordinator, um, and he, he, I think he should be a head coach. He, he's got a lot of talent. He did a lot for the Bills in turning Josh Allen around and that Bills offense around in such a short time, making them perennial Super Bowl contenders. Uh, the Giants owner said, we interviewed several people who are incredible coaches and for whom are going to enjoy much more success in the league, in their current positions, and as a head coach. With that said, we, me, and ownership all felt Brian is the right person to serve as our head coach. Over the last four years, I have observed firsthand Brian's strengths as a leader. He's an excellent communicator, intelligent, innovative, and hardworking. Brian's genuine and engaging personality is refreshing. He fosters relationships with the players and coaches around him. He's progressive in his vision and values collaboration to the tributes we think are essential. I'm thrilled to part with, partner with Brian and welcome him and his family to the side of the state. And he's very qualified, Brian Dable. Uh, in 2021, the offense excelled as Buffalo won its second straight AFC's title. The Bills finished third in the NFL in points per game and fifth in yards per game. And Josh Allen is is putting up big was putting up big numbers in that offense as well. He was also voted the NFL Assistant Coach of the Year in 2020 after the Bills finished 13-3. and Allen finished second in MVP voting, and he's got a lot of experience. 20 years of NFL coaching experience, 11 with the Patriots, 4 with the Bills, and now he's going to be the head coach of the New York Football Giants. I think it's two good hires, but that brings us to the next story that we have to touch on, and that is it deals with the coach who got fired in this cycle who is not – currently been hired, but who's been interviewed for a number of different jobs. And that is Brian Flores, the former Miami Dolphins coach. He is suing the National Football League, the Denver Broncos, and the New York Giants for racism in hiring practices. 
The 58-page lawsuit was filed in Manhattan Federal Court Tuesday and seeks a class action suit. Uh, Flores alleges that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross attempted to incentivize him to tank on per- or purposely lose games shortly after he was hired as the Dolphins head coach in 2019. Apparently, Ross offered Flores $100,000 for every loss that season. Flores said that as the team won games late in the season, Dolphins GM Chris Greer told him Ross was mad and that on-field success was compromising draft position. Additionally, Flores alleges that Ross pressured him into recruiting a a prominent quarterback at the end of 2019 season, which the coach refused refused to do so as not to violate the NFL's tampering rules. He also alleged that the Giants interviewed him last month for their head coaching vacancy for no other reason than compliance with the NFL's Rooney rules. And he used personal texts with Bill Belichick in this lawsuit. And this was crazy to read. Basically, he received a series of texts from Bill's uh, Patriots coach, Bill Belichick, under whom Flores worked for for 10 years in New England. In those texts, Belichick told Flores he had heard from Buffalo and the Giants that you are their guy. Flores asked Belichick to clarify whether he meant to talk to him or Brian Dable, who was also in the running for the Giants' job. Belichick acknowledged his error and informed him that the Giants wanted Dable. Sorry, I effed this up. I double-checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dable. I'm sorry about that. So that's what Bill Belichick sent to Brian Flores. So if that is true, and when those texts were sent, that they already had their mind made up on Brian Dable, that does violate the Rooney rule because his January 27th interview with the Giants uh, interview that satisfied the Rooney rule would have been a sham. Uh, the, the the Giants are uh, uh, apparently the Giants already had their mind made up on Brian Dable according to that text, and they just wanted to interview Brian Flores to meet the Rooney rule. He also alleges a similar scenario occurred when he interviewed with the Broncos in 2019. He says that then Denver GM John Elway arrived to the interview an hour late and hung over, alleging that they had been drinking heavily the night before. So this is a very interesting lawsuit. Brian Flores is risking a lot with this lawsuit. He is risking not ever getting a coaching job in the NFL again, even though I think he is a good coach and talented enough to coach teams in the NFL. But he's risking getting blackballed from the NFL, much like Colin Kaepernick was. And despite all this, the Houston Texans say that he is still a finalist for their head coaching job. So that's definitely an interesting story to keep an eye on. But right now, all we know is that Brian Flores is trying to prove that systemic racism is in the NFL's hiring practices, despite the Rooney rule. And good for him, honestly. I think it's good for him that he's taken up this fight because it is important for there to be equality in these hiring practices. Now, I'm still of the belief that if you're the most qualified, you should get the job, no matter what race you are. But I think everybody should be treated the same way in their interviews. And I think that's what Brian Flores is trying to say, that they were he wasn't given the same chances as like Brian Dable and other coaches. So I think it's good that Brian Flores is doing this, but that's one of the other big news around the NFL. And we're going to wrap up the NFL news before we go to NBA and MLB talk with the Washington football team selecting their new name and 
Drum roll, please. It's the Washington Commanders. After 87 years with its former name and two years as the football team, the franchise announced Wednesday morning that its new name would be the Commanders. They also unveiled new logo and uniforms. Washington leaders uh, Jason Wright and Ron Rivera had stressed during the 21th 20-month process that the franchise would like to incorporate the military because of its connection to the nation ca- nation's capital, and Commanders does that pretty well. Uh, Wright told the assembled crowd uh, that we landed on this in part because we believe that the Washington Commanders can carry the rich legacy of this team, a championship legacy. It's got the weight and heft of something benefiting. Uh, it's got the weight and heft of something befitting a 90-year franchise. It's something that broadly resonated with our fans in this process and something that embodies the values of service and leadership that characterizes the DMV. Washington owner Dan Snyder spoke for 45 seconds, (laughs) which isn't a very long time, before turning it over to his wife and team CEO. Uh, But he said, today's a big day for our team, our fans, a day in which we embark on a new chapter. It's been a long journey to 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 get to this point. So what do I think of the new name? Well, I think the name is all right. Commanders is all right. It kind of rubs off on me the same way the Cleveland Guardians did. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. And it's better, and it's not going to offend anybody. And at the end of the day, that's what they're trying to accomplish. However, I do not love the Washington Commanders uniforms. I like the all-burgundy uniform that the Washington Commanders have. But in my opinion, the white jersey and the black jersey uniforms look like Pro Bowl jerseys. The black jerseys use a black helmet with gold numbers on the side and, in my opinion, a tacky gold W on the front. The white jerseys are just too bright to me. They look like they're a mixture and they couldn't decide if they're trying to be the Cardinals or the 49ers in their uniforms. And so I don't like the originality in that. But I think they did a good job with the renaming process. It was very well done uh, the, the, on social media. Uh, I have a couple friends who are fans of the Commanders who like the new name. So which new name is better, the Cleveland Guardians or Washington Commanders? I tend to lean with the Guardians just because I'm a Guardians fan. And because it wasn't, it wasn't as long of a dragged out process as the Washington Commanders was. But I think both teams got the name right. And a new chapter of football in Washington begins as the Commanders. All right, let's get to some NBA talk. The NBA season winding down to the last couple of months. We're almost at all-star break, which is, I believe, in two-ish weeks. I think February 18th through 20th. It is in Cleveland, and the rest of the all-star reserves get announced tonight. So taking a look at the current Eastern Conference standing, the standings, the Bulls lead the way. They're 32-18. and 18. They've played very well at home this season, 19-6, and six, obviously led by DeMar DeRozan. They got some great players like Lonzo Ball, like Zach Levine, like uh, Nikola Vucevic. They're a very talented team. They're number one in the East. Number two in the East, the team that I picked to make the finals at the beginning of the year is the Miami Heat. I think they're just so slept on, so underrated. They're 32-20. and 20. Just a couple of years ago, they were in the NBA Finals. Jimmy Butler is a top 15 player in the league. They got a great, talented roster around him with guys like Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, Bam Adebayo, Goran Dragic. And they also got their coach, Eric Spolster, who in my opinion is the top five coach in the NBA. 
They're a team to watch for sure. Then you got the 76ers and Bucks with almost identical records uh, at 3 and 4. The Sixers have been getting carried recently by MVP candidate Joel Embiid, who's just playing a ridiculous stretch of basketball. And the Bucks, they're always going to be floating around the top four, top five in the East, but you got to expect the defending champs can flip a switch when it comes playoff time. And that brings us to the Cavs, and the Cavs are struggling a little bit. They're struggling. They've lost two of their last three games. They're 31-21. and That is still good for fifth in the Eastern Conference, only two games back of the Bulls for the number one seed. But they've been struggling a bit. They had a bad loss, in my opinion, last night to the Rockets. They lost to the 15-36 and Houston Rockets, 115-104. Evan Mobley had a good game, 29 points and 12 rebounds. Kevin Love also added 21 points and 13 rebounds. But a big reason why the Cavs lost this game is because Darius Garland is banged up. And that's not good for the Cavs. Uh, Darius Garland is banged up with a back issue. He's missed the last two games. And they need to address uh, the backup point guard position at the trade deadline. Because without Darius Garland, they need to be sure that when he's not on the floor, whether it's due to injury, whether it's due to giving him some rest, they can still be competent on the offensive side of the ball and on defense. They do have a lot of assets. Uh, we, we keep talking about the trade deadline. The trade deadline is, I believe it's the 10th, but I'm going to make sure that it is February 10th. It is Thursday, February 10th, so that's next week, which we will probably update you on that as well, maybe a little bit during the Super Bowl preview episode. We're going to try and keep it mostly focused on the Super Bowl, but we can also talk about some big moves that happen in the deadline. But some of the Cavs' big big um assets that they can trade at the deadline obviously number one is Colin Sexton um he has a torn meniscus but he's a restricted free agent meaning that any club acquired that acquired him would have the option to give him him an offer sheet and get his bird rights giving the giving it the ability to exceed the cap to keep him around so he's an option Ricky Rubio is an option or at least the contract is that's 17.8 million they also have all of their first-round picks, a boatload of incoming second-round picks, and the solid but unspectacular wing tandem of Chetty Osmond and Dylan Windler, who could be assets. What do they need? I've been saying it. They need a scoring two-guard. They need a two-way wing. Isaac Okoro's great defender, limited on offense. Lori Markinen, a power forward by trade, playing small forward out of necessity, has limitations on defense and is also injured. While Coach J.B. Bickerstaff, in my opinion, has done a great, um, an amazing job with this Cavs team. He's the Eastern Conference Coach of the Month. They've gone 11-5, and five, especially on the defensive end. No one averages 20, 20 points per game. Darius Garland's only the, the only guy that clears 17 points a night. Finding someone who could help Garland shoulder the scoring burden and not get smoked defensively would be a big win for this front office. So who do I think the Cavs are going to go after? Well, I think the Cavs should go after guys like Karis LeVert, like an Eric Gordon, like a Buddy Heald. I think they should. I think that would help the team. It would give them another scoring offense, scoring option. Take some pressure off of Colin Sexton. They need for additional scoring and shot creation is too glaring to be overlooked. And I think that should have Kobe Altman in the front office's full attention ahead of the deadline. And if the Cavs can swing a deal, 
I think they're going to add someone who occupies a prominent post in their offense, offensive hierarchy. I'm looking for rumors right now. It doesn't look like there are many NBA rumors right now, but the Cavs did get granted a $3.2 million disabled player exception for Colin Sexton's knee injury. So that is something to keep an eye on as well. So they could use that to their advantage as well. So that let's get to some more NBA news. Um, we mentioned the Eastern Conference. The Nets, Hornets, and Raptors round out the top eight in the Eastern Conference with the Celtics very close to the Raptors with the, uh, the pretty much the same record. In the West, we got to talk about the fantastic Phoenix Suns. They're 41-9. They've won 11 in a row. They're undoubtedly the best team in the NBA. They're so, so good. Obviously led by Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, Head coach Monty Williams is doing a fantastic job in Phoenix, and I expect them to be back in the finals this year. They're the most talented team in the West, in the league, no doubt, and they're hungry to get back there after how they lost last season after being up 2-0. The Warriors sit behind them. They're three games back at 39-13. and The Grizzlies are third at 36-18, and and the Lakers, who we talk, seem to talk about every week, they're still on the outside looking in. They're ninth at 25 and 27. But there's still time to make a move in the NBA season. I'm, I'm interested to see which teams will be buyers and which teams will be sellers at the NBA trade deadline. Let's wrap up today's episode with some MLB lockout updates. So the MLB and the players met on February 1st, and the meeting be, uh, was over. Little progress was made. The on-time opening of spring training at this point is in grave danger, according to ESPN's Jeff Jeff Passan, and frankly would take a miraculous deal coming together to the rescue. A delay feels inevitable. So there's no deal. There's never a deal. It's, it's tough. It's very, very tough. But today, Jeff Passan had some more news. He said Major League Baseball requested immediate assistance of a federal mediator to help resolve the sports lockout. Under their request, the Federal Mediation and Consolation Service would help assist with the proceedings. So basically what this means is that someone will help them to come, come to an agreement. And that's why, that's when they inevitably don't. They will continue to blame the other side. It, 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 it it's tough. I mean, it, it, the owner is is not the owners are not budging. The players are not budging. If you want me to explain what the federal mediator means to you, like you're five years old, it means that the parents, the MLB Players Association, and the MLB owners, the parents are fighting and they're getting a marriage therapist to try and resolve their differences. Not sure if it's going to happen, but it's essentially marriage counseling with billions of dollars on the line. <laughs> Apparently, it's standard operating procedure in lockouts, though, but it's still the beginning of the middle, not the beginning of the end. And I think spring training is in grave danger because the teams would have to have a deal like now so they could get players out to Arizona in a couple of weeks. It's tough. It's tough. We're we're nearly two months into this lockout. We are two months into this lockout. It started December 2nd. But my question to you guys, and your question to me probably is, which I'm going to try and answer right now, when should we be worried about opening day and about the possibility of missing spring training? 
I would start to worry about um, the pitchers and catchers reporting date getting moved on February 15th at February on February 8th, which means from February 3rd today, they have five days to get a lockout done, uh, to get the lockout over and to get a deal done. If the lockout ends in the next five days, players under contract should have enough time to get to camp as scheduled, according to many executives, while free agent frenzy would take place for the remaining unsigned, unsigned players. If that doesn't happen, when are we going to worry about spring training games that begin on February 26th? Well, that would be February 19th. The consensus is among players and coaches and everybody around the game, the players need a bare minimum of seven days to prepare for game action, including spring training games. It means that camps have to be up and running by around February 19th if spring schedules are going to get adhered as well. Of course, there are ways to keep pitchers and position players safe, starting with instructing them to give a little less than 100% in the first few games of the spring, and being ready before camp opens would be ideal as well. And the final question is, when should we worry about opening day being in jeopardy? And that day would be a month from now, March 3rd. March 3rd. During the restart of the pandemic season 2020 to 23 days between the start of this quote-unquote summer camp, July 1st and opening day, wasn't enough time to get ready, at least according to many pitchers and their agents. In order to begin the 2022 regular season on time with less concern for injury, four weeks of spring training are likely needed according to league sources. That means camps have to be open by March 3rd. It doesn't mean the sides can't agree on a shorter spring, just like they did two years ago to keep opening day on March 31st. March 31st, It's just not ideal. And if a deal isn't struck by early March, once again, players will receive $5,000 checks from the union and will need to be ready to either play fewer than 162 games or condense scheduled modified roster limits in order to fit all 162 games in. It's pretty much the doomsday scenario, that what I just explained to you right there. I'm still optimistic that they get a deal done mid-February, but we will have to wait and see because it's the whole thing is so unpredictable at this very juncture. So with that, I think that's going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Jote Sports Pod. That's at J-O-T Sports Pod. And follow me on Twitter at Jack Bernie TV. And we will be back with another episode next week as it's our season finale Super Bowl preview episode. Until then, I've been Jack Bernie, signing off. Have a great week, everybody.